0: Welcome to CTRM Radio, home of the official podcast of Commodity Technology Advisory and your source for information on all matters related to CTRM. Well, the
1: world of commodities is a world of constant change, but one of the bigger issues confronting the industry is that of climate, particularly with the election of Joe Biden in the United States. Climate has become a very big issue. So for this edition of CGRM Radio, we decided to take a look at carbon, climate and its impact on CGRM software as far as we could understand it. So let's get started with Patrick talking to environmental expert as it relates to commodities, Peter Fazzara of Global Change Associates.
0: The question really is two parts. One, how do you see north america and specifically u.s evolving in terms of uh, carbon carbon regulation over the next few years whatever that few is in your definition and then ultimately uh, do you think that companies carbon intensive companies are currently risking their strategies enough for that pending or looming carbon scheme uh, that will be effective in the next several years Okay, well,
2: I I don't see a national
0: carbon cap-and-trade,
2: carbon tax, or any of that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is there are now 61 carbon markets throughout the world. Some of them are cap-and-trade, like California, and some of them are carbon taxes. So we're not going to have uniformity anywhere. There's no appetite in Washington, D.C., to pass any kind of carbon tax, despite what economists think. So I actually don't think we're ever going to see any kind of federal level legislation. So there's a lot of talk about we're rejoining the Paris Accord. But if you look at Paris, it's really aspirational. There's no carbon pricing mechanism built in. So what, what I actually see developing are regional markets like California, which is compliance driven, which has a price of 1850 a ton. It's real and material. Uh, There will be reductions there. Uh, A very much smaller market in the Northeast called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, REGI, and probably some other markets evolving slowly in other states. But I don't see any impetus right now. So what's really occurring in the corporate sector are two things. One they're highly engaged in buying renewable energy. And people don't really message that, particularly the energy industry, which has its largest carbon footprint. So there's a lot of corporate buying of renewable energy. And there's a twofold reason. One, it's good corporate stewardship, but also to attract younger employees. Going farther, there are internal prices for carbon at major energy companies. They know how much this costs them. They model this. They run this through all their small business units so they have a, a, a global perspective and the, the point being is they have to comply in some markets so they're not going to be schizophrenic and be an outlaw in one market and being compliance driven another and having said that europe has now touched 40 euro so we're starting to see higher pricing so the argument has always been on cap and trade if you don't do anything and if you wait longer, it's going to cost you more. And that's exactly what's starting to bear out. There are futures contracts on California carbon, on EU carbon. You look at the forward curve, it's higher pricing going up. This is not a true commodity market like oil or soybeans or corn, where prices can go in backwardation or contango. Here, we're really looking at a forward curve where prices escalate as you come to other commitment periods so the big bogey today now is 2030 what are the cuts going to be at any level for carbon pricing no one had any problems reaching 2020 goals which really were baseline 1990 or 2005 nobody now it's much more heavy lifting of either higher pricing for those compliance driven markets or you start investing in reduction of your carbon footprint. And for energy companies, that's a big capital expense. So some of them are proactive, some of them are migrating what I'll call the energy transition, new energy. So the totals, the equinors, et cetera, are being very shells are, are getting involved in hydrogen, are getting involved in offshore wind, are starting to look at you know, a much more balanced portfolio oil and coal are stranded assets we have greater technology today to find molecules there is no problem anywhere in the world finding fossil energy we have too much of it actually and so because of that factor you have something called stranded assets and that's has a quantification shell's already gone forward and said we already realized we had peak oil last year i'm not talking about. Demand. I'm talking about production. And so we have too much fossil energy. We have the beginning of a renewable market that's gonna grow astronomically because of cost reduction, not because of tax credits, which everybody likes to focus on, but there's been almost a 95% reduction in solar cost in the last 10 years, about a 60% reduction in wind costs. Other renewables are starting to take shape like geothermal and wave power, things that were more outliers we're in the beginning of this and it would have been nice to have carbon pricing but we're not going to see carbon pricing for every market we're going to see uh, something called ESG which is now becoming very topical environmental social governance and in my opinion that's become the new cap and trade this is investor driven I'm talking about the delivery of carbon neutral LNG cargoes. I'm talking about green copper where you site hydroelectric plants Next uh, next to copper mines, you're going to see investors actually pushing this much more aggressively than any governmental agency. Government. I used to be a policymaker. Government moves very slowly. It's not it's not a a, an actor that moves fast. There are constituents. There are lots of hiccups. Business can move much more quickly. And we're going to see a push toward carbon neutrality. I don't think we're going to see this push that everybody likes to mimic or message of net zero by 2050. That's not going to happen. We're still going to be using fossil energy in air travel. We're still going to be using fossil energy in many forms because you cannot replace everything with renewables, specifically with batteries or fuel cells or whatever. So where we are today is that the 61 carbon markets have now shown a very dysfunctional global carbon market. It's not it's not working. It's it's not working as one price for carbon. So it's much more regional, it's much more local, and then you've got a lot of markets that are still in its infancy, like China, which has seven markets that are barely off the ground. So what I'm getting at for corporations, they are positioning themselves now to what I'll call the energy transition. They are going to be buying assets in green energy. They are going to be looking at bumps in energy efficiency. They are going to look, they've already done the easy stuff of operational optimization of efficiency. They've done that. Uh, So you're going to see a very different energy industry emerging because it's going to be driven by corporate stewardship. The ESG train has left the station. This is the decade we're going to see sustainability writ large in the capital markets it's the beginning of a market there's a lot of emphasis on carbon footprinting the air carriers for example really can't do very much and change i briefed the air carriers about 15 years ago they have 40-year horizons so they've bumped up uh, mm. composite materials fuel efficiency about 25 percent but realistically we get back to normal whenever that occurs we'll see more air travel. Well, air travel leaves emissions. That's a reality, and what they're doing is really buying in the voluntary and compliance markets carbon credits, and there's nothing wrong with that. So that's what I'm talking about, carbon neutrality. So if you're burning jet fuel, you'll offset that with tree planting. There's a lot of emphasis on forestry, reforestation, afforestation. So a lot of this is already shifting. And and air travel isn't a very big footprint compared to most fossil energy consumers. The the number one is utilities, and we're still burning a lot of fossil energy at electric and and gas utilities. And that's still, even with the renewables coming down in price, it still takes time to transition.
0: I think. For for me, one of the most salient points there is is really the the, the investor side, the the willingness to forego short term profits as the as a driver to kind of a transition away from hydrocarbons. Uh, I, I think that's something we've seen too, but uh, I, th- I think you've done a very good job of uh, elaborating on that point. I, I do see that as really one of the the major drivers of decarbonization is is the willingness of investors to uh, go against the the, the textbook version of capitalism?
2: Well, they're actually going to make money doing the right thing, as we say in New York. This is a, an industry, we'll call it the sustainability industry, for lack of a better term, which has actually mid-teen returns. There are projects that really move the needle. Uh, this is not impact philanthropy. This is impact investing, where the return model is. You, get, you make money doing the right thing. So there's, there's actually quite a great business opportunity for investors. The other piece of this that's getting a lot of attention from investors is energy storage. And we're seeing a lot of advanced battery technology, not just lithium ion, but zinc air, airflow batteries. Many different battery technologies are becoming near commercializations. They're starting to scale. I'm very involved in what I'll call the hydrogen fuel cell. So we're probably going to see the beginning of a hydrogen economy for trucks, delivery vans, buses. Today, we have trains in Germany and France that run on hydrogen. We have ships that run on hydrogen in Norway and Japan. We're seeing the beginning of a hydrogen economy. It's not 10 years away. It's happening now. Uh, and the Hydrogen Council in Paris has over 100 corporates on board. The game now is get the cost curve down for hydrogen and deploy it rapidly. We're talking an emission of water vapor. So you marry a solar farm or a wind farm to make hydrogen, and you can make a power or energy storage. It's it's where we need to go. Battery technologies are nice, but they're still running on fossil And so we're going to see a lot more investor interest on hydrogen. Right now, there are two industries that are looking at sustainability right in the eye. One is the large global energy industry, multinational. The second is the mining industry, which is now starting to look at carbon neutrality. particularly from the Canadian mining sector. So you're going to see a lot more interest now on sustainable mining and resource uh, critical materials, they call it now. You're going to see a lot more interest on this from investors. And so in my opinion, what's really occurred, because we're not going to have this global price for carbon, we're not going to have Uh, What everybody expects that now that Biden's president, we're gonna have some kind of national regime. No, we're not. We don't have the votes. Not going to happen. Yes, he can clean up some of the federal agencies. We are going to see investor driven ESG. The investors now are some of them are not investing in fossil energy. And I don't think it's such a good idea because the energy industry is extremely capital intensive. So I think there's an opportunity for common ground in the energy sector to change its ways. As I mentioned, this energy transition where some of the energy companies are now moving into renewable resource, are now moving into energy efficiency, are now moving into the utility sector. There'll probably be more consolidation in the energy patch because they are extremely capital intensive and they'll lessen their headcount again.
1: And to get some additional views on carbon and climate as it relates to the commodities industry and CTRM in general, I reached out to David Kane, who's a partner at Boringa.
3: So what we're seeing at the moment are that uh, in the banking world, uh, banks are coming under increasing regulatory pressure and also pressure from their consumers and social pressure uh, to reduce emissions within their financing portfolios and that is starting to lead to them reviewing those portfolios to understand where the emissions sit Uh, and inevitably that is pointing in some shape or form to commodity trading businesses uh, and asset heavy companies who trade around their their positions as part of that they are starting to demand more data from these commodity trading businesses to understand their emissions exposure and thinking about uh, credits credit availability and credit rates that they are charging to uh, the commodity trading companies. In addition, there, there's a little bit of a squeeze from the other end, which is which is not as far advanced and, and it will start to emerge over time, where a trader's counterparties uh, are going to want to know more information about the emissions uh, associated with particular commodities. Uh, and and there, therefore, there, there is potential for a market to develop around green commodities or commodities that are perceived to be green, and the opportunity for traders to potentially charge a premium around that. And again, understanding the data that sits behind their trade flows is going to be essential to taking advantage of that market. So traders who have a bit of a first mover advantage on that front will be well placed in order to, first of all, mitigate risk of of increasing finance costs and potentially take advantage of, of the reduction there. But also, Take advantage in the market of of uh, potential premiums around green commodities, albeit the benchmark for that I think is yet to be set.
1: Do you see things heading in the direction of the creation of new instruments which are uh, take into account the carbon footprint of a commodity? And I, I, I know I'm thinking the like having your copper smelting plant next to your wind farm or something and, and trying to do green copper, so-called, so like green copper instruments being created. Or do you think it will go more in terms of trying to account for a cost of carbon with some reference to a carbon price? And if, if it goes that way, it's going to be, well, I'm jumping ahead. But what, I'm, what I was going to say is I understand it's like 61 carbon markets around the world And uh, Mr. Fazaro doesn't believe there's ever going to be a single price for carbon. So that seems like a very complex way ahead.
3: Yeah, so I think there's a possibility of a bit of both. So I think that that trading companies and asset heavy companies will be looking to reduce the carbon footprint of their activities, partly through just reducing the the direct emissions associated with, let's say, certain assets, uh, but also the value chains associated with those assets. So it may be that... Uh, as you mentioned it could be a copper smelter that is powered by the wind farm next door but also when that copper is has been produced and it is moved around that it's moved around in a low carbon way whether it's by by rail car by truck or by vessel uh, and there are ways to reduce the, the emissions associated with that and, and that will certainly, I think, help for a price to emerge for green commodity. And there will be some leaders from that perspective. We already see quite a bit in the news at the moment around green aluminium, uh, green LNG. I think that's not yet benchmarked, but over time that will start to benchmark as to what that actually means. And therefore that, that premium will, will, will come into play. The, the other side to this of, of reducing emissions and, and off, uh, on your carbon footprint is partly going to be offsetting. And with that... I suspect, will lead to more liquidity in the carbon market. As you say, it's a complex market and a varied market. And I I think it will be interesting to see how that develops. But there will essentially be arbitrage opportunities in that market for people who are savvy enough to take advantage of them. Uh, and, And many of the traders out there, I think, will be looking at their own emissions, how they can understand those, Uh, And then potentially leverage those and understand the carbon market to take advantage of some of that arbitrage over time. But we're not there with that yet.
1: So it sounds like there's going to be a lot more demand for data as it relates to carbon, carbon footprints, that kind of thing. And there's going to be a lot more analysis done of, of supply chains and assets along the supply chain around how carbon is involved. So it's going to be a, a more computational-intensive supply chain, do you think? Or
3: yeah, I believe so. So I think that there's going to need going to be greater transparency of data required for the assets that, that produce commodities, whether that's drilling some oil out of the ground, whether it's whether it's mining, or whether it's the the farming that's associated with agriculture. But also, and this is where things get a little bit more complex, I believe more transparency and liberation of data around the, the, the movement within the value chain. So if you think of a scenario where, let's say, there's some mining of a raw material in, in South America, it's it's put on rail car down to a port, it's then shipped across to, to Europe, it's refined into a, a semi-finished product, and then it's barged, let's say, down the Rhine, stored in warehouses and sold. If you think about the, the carbon emissions associated with that value chain, there's opportunity to to understand the, the emissions. So it might be a very high in carbon intensity mining and crushing process. It could be that there's a, a diesel electric train. Could it could it be an electric train that's used? Could the vessel be be uh, Moved at lower speed, or use a more modern vessel with a different fuel source to reduce emissions, and then obviously stuff like smelting or, or, or a steel mill is incredibly power intensive. So if it again, if it's a let's say it was an aluminium smelter, it, could you use a different smelter which is which is hydro powered or, or gas powered as opposed to thermal coal? Now clearly, as for parts of that value chain, traders only have some control over it, and there's only a finite number of of different sources of semi-finished or products or raw materials you can use. But for other parts, they've got much more control over it. They could choose different vessels, move vessels at different speeds. Ultimately, though, what that leads to is banks demanding more data so they can understand their carbon exposures and regulatory influences are driving that. Um, So it's not just because they want to or because it's social pressure, they have to, and that's becoming more prevalent. And then consumers and then counterparties will want to understand more about the emissions associated with a particular commodity that they are buying. So I can see a scenario in the future where the data that's associated with that particular value chain actually flows through to the invoice that you're passing to a counterparty. So not only does it have the price of the commodity, the pricing terms, the volume or the quantity, the payment terms, the tax, but also there's a breakdown of the emissions. Again, we're not there with this yet, but over time I can see that emerging.
1: It's going to have a big impact on um, commodity management, ERP-type solutions plainly, uh, one way or another, whether right from trading in the sense of perhaps having some other instruments uh, to to manage within a a CTRM, ETRM, and then tracking carbon all through the, uh, the supply chain in terms of almost like traceability or almost like an estimated cost or something.
3: Yeah, exactly, and and, and that, I think there's there's going to have to be quite a lot of thinking around that. There's there's going to need to be work on how to report that in a coherent way, and and how does that impact in if you're a trader who has either an off-the-shelf or a bespoke trading risk management system, along with your ERP system, uh, how how do you bring all that together to make that reporting fast, coherent, and accurate? And so that's going to be one of the the emerging trends that, that we're starting to already see in the market uh, as, as banks in particular demand more data around this.
1: And then that's going to have a knock on effect into all aspects of risk management and so on, because it will be a part of credit risk will be a part of normal market risk, operational risk. So it's going to be so. a pervasive issue going forward, it seems for, for most commodity players.
3: Yeah, I think that the emissions exposure will become in the same way that as people look at their pricing exposure from a market or a credit perspective, or they look at their operational risk, the exposure to emissions will, will, be, will be part of their view. And I think it also will start to influence over time traders decision making. So, so which, which supplier do I buy from? which vessel do I use? Where am I moving? What what trade flow am I taking? Uh, am I, where am I moving something from and to? That will all start to, to play in there with that emissions angle, uh, which hasn't been particularly prevalent in the past.
1: And what is Beringa seeing as the opportunity, um, as well as the challenge around carbon and commodities going forward?
3: So I think from an opportunity perspective, I think there's a first mover advantage for, for traders who get on top of their data quickly and can report that in a coherent way to, to their, their lending partners and to their counterparties and, and to support our clients with that. We are helping them to understand their emissions profiles and also bring the the angle from banks as well as to what they're looking for to mitigate the risk of the increase in cost in finance, but also take opportunity as banks provide incentives for lower cost of borrowing around commodities, which for trading houses in particular is, is highly significant. We, we're also... Working with some of the, the the trade risk management systems within our clients, just to think about how can you think about the, the, the carbon emissions as part of that trade life cycle, and what data would you need in order to be able to report some of that? What assumptions can you make, and and, and what can't you make to, to, to quantify that? And then, based on the data that you currently have within your trade flow, what strategies can you work through to to, to try and reduce and potentially offset those carbon emissions to to demonstrate and build out a credible transition plan to your lenders and your counterparties Uh, and that's something that i think from a from an opportunity and a risk mitigation perspective in the market we will be seeing more of we're starting to work with our clients on it just now uh, and i expect to see to see further development of that
1: finally i spoke with bruce terza of gen 10 to find out what they were thinking about the impact of climate and carbon on ctrm software and what gen 10 had done about it
4: we see that climate and the impact of climate on commodities through carbon pricing is already having an impact on commodities and commodity trading. I think within five to 10 years, you could see the actual competitiveness of commodities defined by their carbon costs and carbon footprint. So it's not just the lowest cost producer, the lowest delivered cost of production, but the lowest delivered cost of carbon neutralized production. So that's pretty fundamental. And it means that commodity traders, users, producers, they're going to have to really understand their carbon footprints and the data which flows from that.
1: Already we're seeing in places like the UK climate audits as well being required. What's all that about?
4: What we are seeing is um, pressure on financial institutions to report their carbon footprint of their hydrocarbons portfolios. So if you're a massive bank with a huge lending portfolio to hydrocarbons, you've got to report your climate climate exposure through the Task Force for Climate Disclosure, and that's going to have a real, real impact. I suspect on the climate or audit issue, as ESG principles take, take, uh, start to bite, auditors will be looking at the climate performance of businesses against what their, their commitments are.
1: Another thing that um, is intriguing is what's the impact of, of climate on
4: counterparty credit. So what's your views there? You climate are- will, definitely, will definitely and increasingly have an impact on counterpart credit risk, particularly, uh, I suspect, on the ags, where uh, performance uh, of contracts can be dramatically affected by crop failures, you know, droughts, um, massive floods, storms, preventing supply. And we will see and have seen counterpart credit risk as a a result of climate impacts.
1: If you were one of these commodity traders, commodity merchants, commodity consumers, producers, what would you be thinking? What would you be doing
4: now in order to get prepared for all of this? Well, I think many commodity producers and traders are pretty sophisticated already. The big ag commodity traders have always dealt with weather and variations in weather. Climate and climate change is just an accelerated and accentuated version of that. So it's all around catching data, understanding impacts early, understanding the risks. But in terms of the climate mitigation, in terms of managing your carbon footprint and neutralizing your your supply chain, it's really understanding where the best options for re- reducing your own internal emissions are and then working out the most cost-effective way of neutralizing your, your carbon footprint. And that is coming, whether it's regulated, which I think we'll see more regulation in this area, or whether it's pressure down the supply chain from consumers. What about Gen 10? Where are
1: you guys on on climate and, and building some of this functionality into your particular version of commodity management?
4: Well, we've done this already um, and we come out of the AGs area and both Richard and I have got extensive experience in primary agriculture which helps but for instance for um, we built a, a completely integrated climate reporting carbon reporting tool into a biomass um, supply chain tool which enabled the uh, potential user to manage the carbon footprint all the way from the forest into the into the power station and use it for reporting for uh, regulatory reporting we are looking increasingly across all the areas we're working in wh- what sort of product will be required to help consumers of ours clients of ours really understand the baseline of their commodity production and what the impact through through the supply chain through the logistics chain of of shipping the the, the commodity is so i think any uh, ctrm or app supply is going to really have to be able to factor carbon in and carbon management and the options around that and all the data flows into the platform. Otherwise, they're not going to be relevant. So
1: what is it that we've learned from our three guests today? Patrick and I had a quick conversation to try to summarise and make sense of what we'd heard from a CTRM point of view. It seems to me, anyway, that climate could well be a major force for change in the energy and commodities industry. Some of the requirements are as yet unknown. Plainly, there's a lot of things that have to transpire. But in terms of CTRM and CM software, it does seem to me that the climate data will be just additional information that has to be carried with a transaction. Do you agree with that or do you see it being more complex?
0: No, I I think that is the case. And and I think and we've already seen them. We've we've seen the development of climate-specific, or I should say, carbon-specific applications out there that help companies kind of understand how much carbon they're generating. Uh, those are highly specialized applications, and then that feeds into. The CTRM, ETRM solutions, uh, we, we ran into that with one particular client earlier uh, or late last year. So, really, the, the carbon, the, the climate considerations simply become financial positions or, I guess, in some cases, physical positions that have to be managed within the ETRM, CTRM system. I think, as you pointed out on one of the earlier uh, discussions, that it, it uh, it's also going to be an issue of, of –
1: like an estimated cost in the transaction, yeah. I think.
0: It, it, yeah, the, the, from, a, from a CM uh, perspective, commodity management perspective, there there will be more implications, uh, that, certainly, than I think you'll, you'll find in ETRM, CTRM. But the other thing that, that kind of strikes me about all of this is I, I do think there is a bit of a bifurcation uh, in terms of the intensity of the tracking, the intensity of the data that will be required between Europe and and the US or even Europe and the rest of the world. The requirements emerging out of Europe, even voluntary standards, are going to be different and probably more intensive than what you find in the rest of the world. But if any vendor wants to do business in that European marketplace, they're clearly going to have to have these capabilities built into the solutions. So it's, it's going to be a, an interesting development to see how much investment technology vendors are wanting to make in that area, uh, specific to the European markets. But again, it is a global marketplace. And if Europe is going to lead in in that vein, then then clearly there needs to be some level of investment in these ETRM, CTRM solutions.
1: Yeah, and what intrigues me is, is as Mr. Fazara said, there are 61 carbon markets. He doesn't believe there's going to be a single price for carbon. And if there isn't a single price for carbon, then maybe Bruce Tozer from Gen 10's assertion that a lot of this will be done in the instrument itself. So you'll be actually engaging in buying and selling an instrument that already takes into account the carbon cost or the carbon footprint. And so sort of green instruments will develop. Maybe that's one of the, one of the things that will happen. And then I would imagine these systems being fairly configurable. It's just the case of adding a, a new instrument that's available from some exchange or whatever into the system and carrying on as before.
0: Yeah, and example. I think that is kind of the best case scenario from a, from a technology vendor standpoint if you're thinking about how do you manage the complexities of those markets, if those markets do emerge that way, where it is simply another financial instrument, uh, you know, that's that's a fairly uh, straightforward implementation, I would think, given that, uh, you know, the, the financial instruments are, are really the easiest to, to manage in these solutions.
1: And then on the other hand, we learned that climate will obviously impact almost every every facet of what a commodity um, buyer and seller does. So it will influence credit, credit risk, it will influence uh, risk, normal market risk, operational risk. So it's clearly going to be uh, an emerging issue that we will have to continue to give substantial thought to as we go forward.
0: Yeah. And and something is going to have to happen. I mean, there's no question about it. It's it's either going to be a regulatory push towards tracking, managing, accounting for carbon emissions, or it's going to be an investor side push, you know, a top down, bottom up kind of situation where these activist investors are even now you start to think of it in terms of mainstream investors are starting to become more concerned about their exposures. Something's going to happen. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's incumbent upon market players, market actors, and uh, the, the technology vendors and consultants to start to take this more into consideration. Whether it's the horizon's six months or the horizon's five years, it, it's coming and it's, it's going to happen one way or the other.
1: It certainly seems like Beringa are already working on projects in that area. Another thought that crossed my mind was uh, last year, of course, Amphora did a, a bit of a project talking to independent oil and gas companies about this activist investor pressure. And what they found is that that is pretty much a Western phenomenon, North America, Western Europe. And when you get into Asia Pacific and Africa... It seemed to have less of an impact. In fact, uh, some of the independent oil and gas producers actually said we're, we're glad to be free of them and their influence and we can find other ways of financing. So it's not all done and dusted.
0: It would appear, no, it, but, it's certainly uh, not. And, and I think that... You know, in a in a capitalist society, if, you know, the cheaper money is going to win out, uh, just how long will that cheap money sustain itself? You know, you, and you do have to look towards uh, the Asian markets, uh, what's happening there. Uh, clearly, the the Chinese uh, are investing broadly in Africa uh, in all sorts of projects and South America. You know, th- there is some fairly cheap money there without a lot of strings attached to it that you find in some of the Western markets. So, Uh, You know, there is a a potential that that could continue and that that could undermine some of the uh, the activist investors efforts.
1: So I guess the summary is at this stage, it seems like there's a lot coming down the down the pipe that needs to be considered carefully. and, And there may be very well be some quite large implications for vendors, but that a lot of it still remains
0: unknown at this stage of the game. Exactly, and I think as I, I, I mentioned earlier, it's it's really a question of a horizon. What's is it is it is it that six months or is it that five years or is it even ten years from now? There, you know, it's a it's an evolving marketplace. It always has been, and this is another one of those uh, factors that could be loom significant on the horizon. And and I think it does loom significant on the horizon. It's Just how far is that horizon?
1: Thank you to our guests who appeared in this edition of CTRM Radio, a podcast from Commodity Technology Advisory. Those were Peter Fazzaro of Global Change, David Kane of Beringa Partners, and Bruce Terza of Gen 10 We hope that you found this podcast informative and enjoyed it. If so, please do like it and share it. Please do follow wherever you're consuming this podcast. On behalf of myself and Patrick Reams, I'd like to thank you for listening. Till the next time, goodbye.
0: You've been listening to CTRM Radio, a podcast by leading industry analysts, Commodity Technology Advisory. You can find more information about us at ComTechAdvisory.com and much more news, views, research and information on CTRM at the CTRM Center at CTRMCenter.com. Thank you for joining our presenters, Managing Partners Patrick Reams and Gary M. Vasey and their guests today, and we hope to see you on a future edition of CTRM Radio.